Hello, and welcome to part five of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where I've been teaching an undergraduate class titled Antarctic Ecology, Geology, History, and Policy. In this podcast, I have distilled this class down into numerous parts that cover all these topics about Antarctica. Part five presented here is on ice cores and atmospheric science in Antarctica. In part three of this podcast, I describe the development of the Antarctic ice sheet over millions of years. And though the sheet covered most of Antarctica by 14 million years ago, no ice currently on the continent is that old. The oldest ice is perhaps 1 million years old, but on average, most of it is only about 125,000 years old. These younger ages for the ice today are due to the constant movement of older ice off the polar plateau to be replaced by younger ice in a cycle that's continued since the ice sheet formed. Even though the ice is not that old in geologic terms, it does contain a record of past environments trapped in water and tiny air bubbles in the ice. The trapped air is a tiny sample of the Earth's atmosphere from the past that can be analyzed and compared to our current atmosphere, which is comprised mostly of nitrogen gas at 78% and oxygen at 21%, but also carbon dioxide and other trace gases at about 0.1%. By drilling cores into the ice, it's possible to retrieve ancient air for paleoclimatic research going back hundreds of thousands of years. It is not a simple process, though. First, how do you select a site for your ice core? Drilling a deep core in thick ice under extreme cold conditions is not an easy task. Ice core scientists try to pick spots where the ice is thickest and thus oldest with the least amount of flow away from the center of snow accumulation. That way, the longest and oldest core will be retrieved. Another issue is knowing how snow accumulates in Antarctica because it takes a long time before that snow is compressed into ice and traps the air bubbles. While the surface slowly builds up with snowfall, air can still move freely between snow crystals. In fact, it might take hundreds of years before the snow is compressed enough into ice to trap and preserve air bubbles within it. That means, though, that the age of the trapped air is not the same as the age of the ice it becomes trapped in. So the ice core data must be corrected for this age discrepancy. Once that is done, the chronology of the atmospheric data from the ice cores will be accurate. Chemical analysis of air, as well as the water and dust particles in the ice, can tell us a great deal about past climates and global temperatures. However, how do you determine the age of an ice core? One characteristic of snow that most of us do not think about is that it has a different density or mass per volume of ice and water depending on ambient temperature. In warmer temperatures, the snow is more dense while the reverse in the cold. In Antarctica, winds in winter are more intense and newly fallen snow, though less dense than snow in summer, becomes more compacted, increasing its density more than snow that falls in the Antarctic summer. This annual cycle is actually visible in ice cores because the denser winter layers are darker in color than summer layers. Less light is passing through them. So, like tree rings, you can actually count annual cycles along the length of an ice core. That can be a tedious process, though, if the core dates back hundreds of thousands of years. So, other methods to age the core can be used as well. For example, there are known volcanic eruptions in Earth's history that have been dated using geochemical dating methods. Each eruption produces dust that can spread all around the Earth through the atmosphere and the dust particles contain a geochemical signature unique to that eruption. If a layer of dust is found in an ice core, 
the geochemistry of that dust may be a means to trace it to a specific volcanic eruption in the past and thus age the core at that layer. If that doesn't work, sometimes dust particles will have radioactive isotopes, such as uranium, that have a known decay rate, and the amount of decay in those isotopes can provide an age of the core. Once the chronology of the core is established, analysis of air and water within it provide a treasure trove of information on past climates. These data have shown that there are cycles of climate change that determine ice ages versus interglacial cycles at regular intervals over the past 800,000 years of Earth history. These cycles are confirmed with ice cores from the only other ice sheet in the world in Greenland. The causes for these cycles vary from slight changes in Earth's orbit around the sun that affect the amount of solar radiation received to a slight wobble of the Earth itself that changes solar radiation as well. Atmospheric gases such as CO2, methane, and nitrous oxide are directly correlated with increases in global temperatures because they are greenhouse gases able to trap infrared heat in the atmosphere that radiates from the Earth's surface after absorbing heat from sunlight. The good thing about greenhouse gases is we wouldn't be here without them. As a natural part of our atmosphere, by absorbing and retaining heat, they provide a warm blanket of air around Earth, without which the entire planet would be frozen and without life. The bad thing is that adding greenhouse gases artificially from pollutants and fossil fuels increases that heat retention in the atmosphere, and thus global temperatures increase. The natural changes in CO2 in our atmosphere over millennia can be measured in ice cores and explains why we have long periods of a warming Earth followed by an ice age. These data also show how CO2 has increased well above any natural cycle in modern times due to anthropogenic sources such as fossil fuels and gives us a means to try to mitigate the impact we are having on global temperatures. Although there is a lot more to ice cores that I could present here, if you want to learn more about them, I highly recommend a book by two ice core experts called the Ice Chronicles by Paul Majewski and Frank White, published in 2002. They provide an easy-to-read explanation on how ice cores are collected, analyzed, and used to reconstruct Earth's climate history. Now, while we are on the subject of atmospheric sciences, it's important to mention the role of another gas, ozone, which is simply an O3 molecule. Ozone, as with greenhouse gases, is a natural part of our atmosphere drifting about in the stratosphere layer at about 15 to 25 kilometers in altitude. These molecules trap and absorb the most harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun that would otherwise be fatal to life on Earth, rupturing cells and disrupting cellular function. Ozone wasn't always a part of the atmosphere, though. Billions of years ago, the early Earth's atmosphere lacked oxygen and so had no ozone either. Once marine algae evolved, escaping the harmful UV radiation by being in the water, it began producing oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis. Then, the atmosphere slowly accumulated oxygen. When UV rays strike an oxygen molecule, it splits it to two oxygen atoms. One of these atoms can react with an oxygen molecule to form O3. So gradually, O3 began to build up in the atmosphere as well. After two and a half billion years, there was enough ozone in the atmosphere to block the most harmful UV light so that terrestrial life could evolve beginning about 500 million years ago. So again, there would be no terrestrial life without ozone. The ozone hole over Antarctica each spring and summer is actually a thinning of the ozone layer so that more of the harmful UV light now penetrates to the Earth's surface. This hole forms from chemical reactions in the atmosphere with a man-made gas, chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, that are byproducts of coolants and solvents. 
CFCs by themselves are harmless, but when they break down, they release free chlorine, and it will react with ozone and destroy an O3 molecule by converting it to chlorine monoxide. CFCs break down when they are trapped on ice crystals in polar stratospheric clouds that form over Antarctica each winter, when temperatures there are cold enough to do this. Then, when the sun returns in spring, the ice crystals melt and chlorine is released and begins destroying ozone and creating the hole. Understanding of this process took considerable research and knowledge of atmospheric chemistry, and in 1995, the three scientists who figured this out, two from the U.S. and one from the Netherlands, jointly won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovering this process. Most of us have heard about the ozone hole over Antarctica, but few know that we came dangerously close to losing so much ozone that terrestrial life could have vanished. Fortunately, the British had established Haley Station in Antarctica in 1956 for the International Geophysical Year of 1957 to 1958. This was a year when Antarctica was in focus, especially to learn more about the atmosphere and Earth's magnetic fields. The scientists at Haley began sending up instruments on balloons to measure atmospheric gases at various altitudes, one of which was ozone. Thus began the longest timeline of data on ozone levels in our atmosphere that we now have. Because that timeline gave us ozone levels prior to the use of CFCs, the drastic decline in ozone observed in the 1970s and 80s was of great concern, and measures were taken to reduce the use of CFCs and protect the ozone layer. The ozone hole still appears every spring in Antarctica, and while controlling the use of CFCs helps stop the loss of ozone, it still is not recovered, and every year the size of the ozone hole and amount of ozone measured there has varied and is still of concern. The last thing I want to say about the ice sheets and atmosphere in Antarctica is that the polar plateau is an ideal location for astronomical studies. Instruments and arrays to study space science gather the best data here because the cold, dry air above the ice means less distortion in air that would interfere with a space telescope. And the high reflectivity of the ice means less infrared radiation coming from the surface that could further distort the air. There is no light pollution from cities on the polar plateau and few pollutants. As a result, astronomers have obtained the best images of comets and solar events and a better understanding of cosmic rays from Antarctica. Arrays have been built in the ice at the South Pole to study and detect subatomic particles such as neutrinos that tell us more about the origin of the universe. Finally, meteorites that fall on the ice sheet are better preserved and more intact than in other places on Earth and tell us more about the moon, Mars, and how asteroids form. So, the Antarctic ice sheet has not only provided a record of Earth's climate history from ice cores, but has been a platform for numerous discoveries about space, our magnetic fields, and our atmosphere. Thank you for listening to my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and I hope you tune in to Part 6 when I begin a new section of this podcast on Antarctic ecology, beginning with marine ecology.